remember the good old days that when we talk about the concept of democracy, of course, everyone treasure those good old days that back in the days that we were able to sit down have decent conversations. When we talk about the value of sustaining the democratic system, but fast forward in the year of 2023, everywhere, especially on the social media, the democracy is being challenged by the social affairs and also by this concept of violence. And the simple question we need to ask is: Violence the only answer to the? Democracy today. So, in other words, without sustaining the problem or without solving the problem, I guess every day the only thing we can see is riots, protests. Again, we、we'll、look at the countries from the countries in Southeast Asia and also the countries in Europe, and most importantly in America today. What is happening to the political system? And 2024, are we still going to see the beauty of democracy in this country? And how about the topic related to the COVID? Well, that's why in this episode it's so interesting that we are going to discuss some of the critical matters and relate to the COVID pandemic, and which just happened not too long ago. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, which is Mr. Thomas Fazi. Again, Mr. Fazi is one journalist and a writer and a translator, and his articles have appeared in numerous online and printed publications. He is a regular contributor for Unheard and Compact. If you follow his work, his latest book, which is called The COVID Consensus. The global assault on democracy and the poor, a critic from the left. Well, Mr. Fazi, and welcome back to the missing piece. Hi, Will. It's a pleasure to be back. Thanks for having me on your show again. <clears throat> Absolutely, brother. It's been a while. And by the way, I have to say that when I started to reading this amazing book regarding the COVID situation, of course, I mean it looks like it just took place. Yesterday, but again, if we look at it deeper, let's get to the first question right away. Why was the COVID assault on modern democracy and the poor? I mean, it's understandable that how COVID create this political polarization. Again, it's not just in the United States, but also around the world today. But don't you think it's a little bit too much to say that the COVID is assault on modern democracy and the poor? What is the meaning behind that? Well, no, I don't. Th- I don't think that's an, an, an exaggeration at all.、Um, and of course, it wasn't COVID uh, uh, itself that assaulted democracy and the poor. It wasn't the virus. It was the、uh, pandemic response. It was the political response to the virus that created that. And、uh, <clears throat> you know, you mentioned、um, democracy and its declining uh, quality. Uh, we could say and.、Uh, You know why? What? Why is that? There are a number of reasons, but of course, democracy is about much more than just uh, voting uh, once every you know X years, four or five years.、Um, that's that's not democracy. That's the you know to the extent that democracy means some degree of people power, some degree of、uh, people have and people workers having collective control over、um, their country's destiny. Um, but of course, for that to be the case,、uh, you know, some elements have to be in place. So, for example,、uh, a democracy can only be considered such,、uh, uh, or you know, a true democracy if the if the wealth is shared relatively、mm-hmm. um, um, equitably. That doesn't mean that everyone's equal. We're not、mm-hmm. talking about you know communism, but wealth has to be shared.、Um, <clears throat> In a relatively、uh, equitable manner, because、mm-hmm. if too few people、uh, start to acquire too much of a country's wealth, then that economic power clearly translates translates into political power,、mm-hmm. and so you know you 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 slowly move from a democracy to a plutocracy,、mm-hmm. or to you know, ru- you know a rule of the oligarchy,、uh, which means that though you know that the 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 the, the A country's wealthy, ultra wealthy elite ends up effectively controlling the political system too, because、uh, you know when when you have so much money and you can buy off pretty much any, any you know any politician you want,、uh, you know the access, the political access that that money buys you,、uh, 
means that your vote uh, is, uh, you know, worth as much as the vote of the next, you know, 10,000, 20,000 people. Mm. Um, so you're not a democracy anymore. And so, um, and we know that today uh, inequality is uh, worse than it's ever been. Um, we know that, uh, you know, over the past decades, uh, the top 1% and even more so the top 0.1% of Western countries have accrued uh, more and more wealth relative to the rest of society than they've ever had before. Um, so that's one reason why democracy isn't in a uh, isn't in a good state, because we've allowed too few people to acquire too much uh, economic and therefore political power. Um, that's one problem. And then, of course, you know, another issue is uh, that you can only speak of, uh, of, of democracy if there's, um, if certain, you know, guarantees are in place and, mm. you know, guarantees that in countries like America are even upheld by the constitution. So freedom of speech, uh, the ability to have a free debate, um, the ability to access a wide variety of, uh, points of view of, uh, uh, opinions. This is clearly another pillar of democracy as historically we've understood it. Um, and this is another element that we've lost in, um, you know, I would say pretty much every Western country. But again, America is quite an extreme example of that to the extent that America is, um, one of the countries that has the most concentrated uh, media in the world. Um, uh, you know, this is not a new problem, but it's become worse and worse over the years. So today, effectively, what you have is a handful of mega corporations essentially controlling uh, pretty much the entire, you know, mainstream information flow. Mm. Um, and this is a big problem, <clears throat> of course, because, uh, you know, um, this this means that you don't have that plurality of visions anymore. This means that that same economic elite that uh, that we were mentioning earlier also doesn't just have privileged access. The political system doesn't isn't able to effectively co-opt um, the political system, um, but it also controls what you know the information that arrives to everyone else. Mm. Uh, and, you know, one doesn't have to be a conspiracy theorist to uh, imagine that they will use that power to um, make, you know, to make sure that that, you know, to cement their power, to cement their influence. They won't use that power to empower um, ordinary people. They will use that that media power to further entrench um their, their own economic and political power. Mm. Um, so I would say, you know, these are two of the major pro major problems that we're facing um, today. Um, excessive private and corporate power and excessive media concentration. And to that second point, I would add a third point, which is, you know, and you mentioned that too, social media. Mm. Uh, there was this naive vision back in the day where social media would finally free us from this, from the grip of the kind of, uh, you know, unilateral, uh, you know, information that we that we were used to, That's uh, right. and that finally, you know, we wouldn't be taking our information from just a few channels or a few newspapers, but finally we would have had we would have access to, you know, every bit of information in the world, and that this would free us, and we'd all be better off for that. Uh, you know, fast forward to today, and that's clearly not the world we live in. In fact, we live in a world that, as we were saying, is much worse off, even that than you know than it was you know twenty or thirty years ago. Um, even in terms of the online debate, and of course that relates to you know the the second point, uh, and that is that you know the internet. I mean, the the the, the, the great um, corporate powers that control other sectors of the economy mm. also control the internet. Mm. And so this, you know, so social media isn't neutral. There are, you know, big interests behind, you know, these, these big tech companies that control um, uh, our social media platforms. They also have interests and, uh, uh, you know, often vested interests, which they're not open about. And, um, and in fact, what we know is that 
and, and I think what we've learned during the pandemic especially is that the information that flows through social media is just as tightly controlled as the information that as the information that flows through traditional media mm. and that's become apparent with you know the Twitter files released uh, by Elon Musk after his takeover of Twitter but also you know I mean congressional hearings that we've that, that have been hap- that have taken place um in recent months uh so a lot of stuff has come to the surface which has revealed just how you know extensive the control is of it of the information also on social media and so you these so these elements were all in place before the pandemic mm. you know the pandemic didn't invent any of this uh but of course the fact that these elements were in place meant that the world was ripe um for a crisis like covid to be exploited politically in order for those in power to further entrench their power mm. and their control over society and i think that's what we saw during the pandemic and this is not about you know whether a virus you know this is not about denying the existence of the virus or, you know of course so uh you know it's not you know the whole issue of covid denialism is uh, is a total misnomer because no one's denying that the virus was was real uh we could debate where it came from and we can do that if you want, uh, even though, of course, there's no clear answer to that. But mm. that's another debate that we've been denied. Um, but so what I think happened was that the um, <clears throat> yeah, the most powerful elements in Western society uh, sought to exploit this crisis, sought to exploit this crisis. And they were preparing um, for, I mean, they were prepared for, for this crisis. Um, that doesn't mean that they planned the whole thing. It doesn't mean that they... Uh, deliberately released the virus um, into society. Um, but it does mean that they've been preparing for how to handle a pandemic for a very long time. Mm. There have been exercises, scenarios, planning at the at the highest level, uh, all related to the question, how do we deal with a pandemic, which for years we've been hearing was only a matter of time before it struck. Right. Mm. So we've been so this whole so we've been living in a world of pandemic planning for a very long time. This means that they were ready to respond to a pandemic in a certain way. And and that was largely the way in which they have responded. Um and that is by, you know, centralizing the the response at the high you know, at the highest level, not just of government, but even of kind of even above government. So at the supranational level, uh, you know, within institutions such as World Health Organization. Um, they, they, they had already planned and discussed the, the way in which information would have to be tightly controlled to fight, you know, quote unquote disinformation, uh, which is exactly what, what, what has happened. And, um, and if we look at who, um, you know, who was dry, who actually, um, well, let's look at who benefited, I would say, from the pandemic response. Um, and from the, you know, the two main, the two, pillars of the pandemic response, which were lockdowns first, and then kind of mass, if not enforced vaccination policies. Uh, it's clearly uh, the sector of the economy that benefited the most from the lockdowns was big tech. Mm-hmm. We know why that is the case. While small small and medium businesses, uh, you know, retail, um, you know, main street shops suffered, and in fact, many of them were forced to close down for good, uh, as a result of the lockdowns, um, online uh, companies, uh, you know, whether we're talking of uh, 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 online, um, you know, delivery companies or whether we're talking of, uh, you know, platforms like Zoom uh, or Amazon or Facebook, all these companies made record breaking profits throughout lockdown as because life essentially, sh- essentially shifted online. Mm. So we went from an a, a, you know, and a, a, a mostly over offline life to an almost 100% online life for, you know, on and off for two years. Um, and so those companies benefited massively. Um, so those same, so those same companies that we now know were, uh, censoring any form of uh, critical, uh, opinion, uh, over lockdowns, mm. for example. We know there was massive censorship done by companies such as Facebook and Twitter, where it was enough to, you know, just timidly critic, you know, uh, raise some uh, questions about the, mm. you know, long-term benefits of lockdowns to be censored, deplatformed, uh, and we know these are the same companies that were actually benefiting from lockdown. So again, we see a conflict of interest there. And then when we look at the second phase of the pandemic response, 
it's all too obvious who benefited obviously is the big pharmaceutical companies and especially the vaccine makers um and these are companies that played a big role in driving the pandemic response there are figures who are heavily invested in vaccines like bill gates mm. which and i'm just citing him you know because he's just the most obvious example sure. of this uh of this trend of growing corporate um co-option of political institutions um bill gates we know by his own admission to be heavily invested in um in in vaccines i mean vaccines is, has always been a big thing for gates for a very long time uh, you know since he's gone into sort of philanthropy um and but we also know that bill gates is the second largest funder of the who of the world mm. health organization again another conflict of interest there uh you know someone who's heavily invested in vaccines who's also the second largest funder of the most you know the the, the global public health body uh which played a massive role in driving the pandemic response and especially in pushing first for lockdowns and then for mass vaccination um over which bill gates clearly exercises a massive influence uh bigger than the influence that most uh, states and governments have over the who mm. um who clearly stood to benefit from these mass vaccination policies who used his influence to uh promote mm. these policies um so these are just two examples uh, i think of the way in which the pandemic response was driven by interests and, and, and ideologies that had very little to do with actually promoting public health with actually helping people with actually saving lives and in fact we know that you know it's we know that these policies uh, not only um did not you know overall um save lives especially lockdowns you know it's now you know the, the whole vaccines we can talk about that um it, i think the question is more nuanced there but when we come to uh um lockdowns the the data is pretty clear lockdowns did not um reduce uh in a number of cases covid mortality they definitely did not reduce overall mortality mm. or, you know so what we see is that excess you know excess deaths um that is deaths higher than the kind of pre-pandemic uh average um are often correlated to lockdowns and i think it's you know uh it's easy to understand why you know i mean when you disrupt societies to such an extent that's clearly bound to have a knock-on effect uh down you know down the line over the years um where you know at the, at the end of the day the costs will always will always out outweigh whatever benefits it might have had over for example temporarily reducing COVID deaths mm -hmm. and in fact uh uh, it's it's questionable whether it even did that, whether lockdowns even did that. Uh, but even assuming that they did play a role in temporarily reducing COVID deaths, it's quite clear that they contributed to a, 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 a higher overall deaths as a result of hospital disruption, of disrupting you know, economic disruption, and so on and so forth. Um, and so, you know, this is a clear example of how these policies, uh, even though they were turned into a, you know, um, health versus economy. Uh, for debate, uh, whereby if you were a good progressive left left wing person, you were pro lockdowns, while if you were an evil right wing libertarian Trumpian, you were uh, against lockdowns because you didn't care about people. Right. Um, clearly, this narrative was completely fake. Um, clear, you know, it's now clear that these policies, as I was saying, uh, did not promote health, did not uh, save lives, and uh, you know, you could make the same argument for. The vaccines clearly the vaccines uh there were there were clearly that the, that the small percentage of people in society that were actually at serious risk from covid uh and so we're talking of uh, you know old people mainly 60 70 plus people uh, especially with pre-existing medical conditions uh for these people there might have been a case um for them to take you know to uh well i think you know there is a case at least the data showed that you know at, at least in the in, you know for a certain period the vaccines were uh helpful in reducing hospitalizations and deaths but um so you know whatever risk there might have been from taking a vaccine if you were if you fell within this category there was a case to be made that the uh, whatever risks the, vac the vaccine might have carried um they they were still outweighed by the benefits since mm. the risk from 
COVID was much higher. Mm. But the problem is that the, the, you know, there was only a very small percentage of society that was ever at a very serious risk from COVID. And we don't have to get anecdotal here. It's not about, oh, my cousin, oh, I know a friend who was young and, you know, you know was very sick from COVID. You know, I mean, of course, we've all got anecdotal stories like that because there are exceptions. But the statistics are very clear about this. The statistics are very clear about the fact that below a certain age, uh, so for, for the overwhelming majority of the population, so people below 60 with no serious pre-existing illnesses, COVID was never a serious threat. Mm. And in fact, you know, the, the 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 statistics are very clear about you know who died uh, uh, from COVID, and it was overwhelmingly um, old people. Um, so you know this is this is a fact. And so and and the younger you were, the less at risk you were from COVID. But th- and but with the vaccines, it's the opposite. So with the vaccines, uh, the younger you are, the higher the risk of suffering some kind of adverse mm. event from the vaccine. Uh, and so what you hit, what you have here is that, you know, um, if, you know, at the very, at the highest end of the uh, kind of age bracket, the cost benefit analysis of the vaccines, I would say is quite clear, was at least quite clear in the, in, in the early, you know, in the first kind of uh, stage of the vaccine rollout. That was not the case once you kind of went back down the age, uh, the age ladder. And, and in fact, you know, when you look at 20, 30 year olds, if not younger, uh, people, um, it's 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 become increasingly clear, and it's also showing up in data that in fact, you know, taking a vaccine was uh, riskier than 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 not taking it. That's right. In the sense that the risk from co- the risk from COVID was either zero or so low that even a, even a very small risk from the vaccine was always going to be higher than the risk from COVID. And so the point is, is here is not criticizing the vaccine as such, you know, even though there's a lot to say about the way they were developed and rolled out in record-breaking, you know, um, speed. Uh, so there are serious issues there, but I think the, the, what was really serious about the way the, the vaccine um, um, policies were handled was that everyone was treated the same. And so this idea that we're just gonna give it to everyone uh, regardless of this, of this, of these different, of these risk uh, um, benefit differentials, uh, based on based on age and other and other and other factors, uh, I think this was this was very serious. And again, when I when I asked myself why was this done, uh, was it done because they thought that was a quick, no, that was the best way to protect everyone, so was it just a mistake done in good faith, or was there something a bit more ominous ominous at play? Was mm. profit? what was actually driving these policies was a profit that made government say, okay, we're not just going to vaccinate um, or, 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 you know, try to, you know, force people in uh, to get vaccinated that are seriously at risk from COVID. Um, we're going to, we're going to try to enforce the vaccination on everyone. Um, and clearly, you know, if they had gone down the first route, the profits for the vaccine companies would have been, you know, much, much, mm-hmm. incredibly smaller. One thing is vaccinating the kind of, you know, uh, say ten percent of society that is, you know, uh, most at risk, or twenty percent of society that is most, most at risk, even though the numbers are much lower. Um, another thing is saying, well, let's try and vaccinate one hundred percent of um, society, and you know, they 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 came quite close to that in in the West, in a sense that at some point, you know, we were vaccinating pretty much everyone above six months old mm. uh or at least they were trying to um but in, in a number of cases they they succeeded in reaching very high vaccination rates and how did they do that uh you know through co- coercion if not um enforcement um never outright enforcement like in a certain you know mandates were very outright mandates were very rare but when you resort to instruments like you know the vaccine passes and vaccine passports where effectively you're making life impossible for anyone that's not vaccinated you're effectively enforcing a vaccine without actually having to enforce it um so you know these are just so 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 overall i would say this is the uh you know this is kind of what we try to show in the book we try to provide a critical analysis of what happened which is based not in uh you know not job conspiracy theories, but it was raised is based on uh you know 
I would say dialectic materialism. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I, both me and my co-author we come from the left, and so we're used we're used to analyzing uh, these phenomena from a economic from an economical economic and sociological perspective, and so we we we, we simply apply to the pandemic the same uh, kind of analytical frameworks mm. that we've used in the past to analyze other phenomena, and which people on the left used to uh, used to use to analyze political uh, phenomena. You know, just a few uh, years ago, someone like Naomi Klein, kind of a darling mm. of the left, you know, wrote a very interesting book called uh, The Shock Doctrine, where she explained how those in power tend to exploit emergencies and crises to uh, further their interests. And in, in that case, she was talking of mostly natural uh, crises, natural emergencies like Katrina uh, and so on and so forth. But clearly, you know, you can apply that same paradigm. And in fact, you know, we do that in a book, you know, we can apply that same paradigm to what happened during a pandemic. Um, but all of a sudden during a pandemic, everyone on the left kind of, you know, wasn't willing to, uh, to, 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 you know, to, to analyze, to use that framework anymore. They just all got on board with the mainstream narrative, and so as you know, as people on the from the left, we we found that baffling and worrying and kind of you know disturbing, and I think that's mainly what wrote us to write this book. Which, as you said, we you know we specify being a critique from the left because I think it's um, you know we wanted to provide a you know kind of also a different kind of criticism from a kind of your standard kind of maybe libertarian more right-wing critic you know critique of of these policies you know we come from a different tradition and that's what we try to uh um apply in our analysis um of, of the pandemic sorry very long winded answer there but. no i mean mr fazi that's exactly why i asked the question because again there are a couple significant points that you mentioned but one of them number one there's no denying that i know this is something that you also touched in your book which related to the lockdown i mean again the lockdown powers of the policy only worked that to some extent and for some specific countries but it's not a global policy and also it's not a global initiative and the next one is again in your book that you talk about the effectiveness of the leadership and that's why it's so interesting that you touched on that during the previous answer and that really lead me uh, lead to the next question is mr fazi how much do you think or do you agree that modern leaders across the world today were being tested and by the measure because of the existence of the covid situation or the pandemic because we know that today the last thing that we want is when we look at a crisis that took place around the world that we don't want to politicize everything but somehow that when we look at COVID situation, when everyone, the average citizens granted, regardless the nationalities, regardless the color of the skins and, you know, the background and uprisings, but everyone was looking for solutions and everyone was looking for shelter, so to speak. But somehow that this issue was was so, po so polarized or so politicized so much that we were even blinded to some extent. So again, Mr. Fossey, coming back to your point is, would you agree that this pandemic not only show us the true side of the humanity and also was the testament or even tested for the leadership? What would you say to that? Well, on the issue of the of, of polarization, absolutely. I mean, we talk about that quite a bit in the book. And I think that's one of the main problems that we saw during the pandemic, where um, because of existing trends, pre-existing trends in growing polarization in Western societies, uh, almost, if not almost kind of, you know, civil war-like um, uh, hatred between mm. political factions in, in a number of countries, most obviously the, the United States. Um, what that meant was that any, any space for reasoned uh, debate and, and just, I would say, free thinking analysis of what was happening by kind of ordinary people uh was went out of the window almost immediately mm. when for example people like um boris johnson in the uk or donald trump in the us um started uh, expressing critical views of the of lockdowns for mm. example um 
taking views that in hindsight uh you know they weren't particularly refined views but um but still you know the 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 doubts that these leaders and i'm no i'm, I'm no big fan of either of those two mm. politicians but at the same time but i have to you know i have to admit that the the, the doubts they were raising which were you know what data do we have to support this mm. uh you know is there a risk that they'll they, that the, the damage of these policies is, you know, that the cure is worse than the illness in the end. These are just basic issues that they were raising. Like, where's the, you know, where's the evidence for, you know, um, for supporting such a momentous decision of, you know, something that's never been done before in history, you know, shutting down entire societies, entire countries. Uh, essentially confining uh, the entire population of mostly healthy people to, uh, you know, quasi house arrest. Uh, um, uh, you know, I mean, this is, this was a completely unprecedented um, policy, uh, something that I think prior to 2020, we would have confined to the realm of science fiction and probably, you know, and not not the no not the positive science fiction the kind of dystopian science fiction mm. uh stuff out of like you know uh orwell uh, uh or you know films about you know dystopian future dictatorships um never i think i think it, people would have laughed off the idea that policies like this would have ever been possible to implement uh at least in the so-called you know liberal um democratic uh west um, so, you know, regardless of what one thinks of these two leaders, uh, or, 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 you know, they were, they were right to raise questions about these policies. Uh, and you know, maybe they were doing it for the wrong reasons, but I think everyone should have been questioning these policies. Mm. Um, but anyway, and so the fact that the anti-lockdown position soon became associated with people like Johnson and Trump meant that that instantly it, mean, it meant that the kind of one's position over what was the best response to COVID essentially overla oh, started, uh, overlapped with mm. one's uh, ideological position uh, with regard to people like Johnson and Trump. And so, you know, to simplify it to the mass, most people on the left embraced lockdowns because simply because they assumed oh if very bad people like johnson and trump are against lockdowns and they're right wing uh as a left-wing person clearly that must you know i i can't but view their decisions as something bad mm. uh which means that lockdowns must be you know i don't the, the good uh you know progressive position to take um you know where the ones that want to save lives, though they they just care about the economy and they don't care about people's health. You know, this is kind of the the hyper simplification of of the argument. But that's how a lot of people essentially approach these these issues. Um, and so, you know, political polarization was uh, became a huge obstacle to any kind of reasoned debate about these uh, about these policies very 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 early on. Uh, but of course, it wasn't just that. It was also the fact that these policies were rammed down mm. people's throats on the media uh through the mainstream media uh on you know there, there was was virtually no criticism of these policies that was allowed uh and so we see again that issue of uh um media control of the narrative and and, and that's what allowed this single narrative to emerge very early on very powerfully what we call the COVID consensus which initially was the lockdown consensus um, and that shows the power of the media today, that something that would have been inconceivable just a few weeks earlier becomes the only possible option. And in fact, if you're against that, you're a crazy right wing nutter who just wants people to die. Mm. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe stretching the argument a bit, but not too much. I mean, if we go back to especially early 2020, this was more or less the tone of the debate. Uh, and I think, you know, um, most of us remember that. Um, so, and so that's all, that also helps explain why everyone embraced these policies, uh, even though they were, you know, never tried before, never implemented before, never even conceived of before, uh, did not represent any 
scientific pre-existing scientific consensus whatsoever uh lockdowns weren't even conceived of in any of the pre-2020 pandemic plans that have been prepared by the either who or national governments literally completely novel response pulled out of the hat uh by you know the you know well first china uh and then uh you know even though the chinese response was i would say very, you know, quite different from the western response to the extent that yes they kind of invented lockdowns but they were still that was still a localized lockdown in right. wuhan and hubei region um you know very a small percentage of the population and of the economy was you know was covered by these policies you know i think that about three percent of china's population live in the entire hubei region so uh so that's one thing um another thing is locking down our entire country which is what italy first did and then what everyone else started copying that's a completely different you know the consequences of that will all will clearly all be incomparably worse to simply locking down a city or even a uh, a single region of a country which is which is what china did um but so this completely novel Chinese response uh, within a few weeks is presented by the WHO as the only possible way to respond to this uh, this virus. And um, so what we see on the one hand, a very clear consensus that is created, and I would say handed down um, by the WHO and then distributed to everyone else through the corporate mainstream media. Um, so no, on the one hand, clearly there was, you know, someone had, someone devised this consensus. Mm. So when the WHO pulls out its first report from China and says, this is the way to respond to this virus, they are forming that early consensus. And it's not just any old organization forming it, it's the most important public health organization in the world. It's the global, is the world's public health organization that is telling uh, countries, this is how you respond to this virus mm. by locking down. Mm. Uh, and then that message is transmitted 24 seven, you know, uh, ram down people's throats uh, throughout, um, throughout the mainstream media. Um, and again, an extraordinary thing that we saw uh, in this pandemic was how this single narrative wasn't just harmonized sort of within countries. So you, you know, whatever channel you were watching, mm. or, you know, it, it was the same thing. A, 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 you know, hardly any uh, space for uh, debate, uh, but it was harmonized across countries. Uh, so, you know, whether you, whether you lived in the UK or in America or in Italy, well, not all countries, but definitely, you know, certainly Western countries, but given the influence of Western governments and Western media, that clearly, you know, slowly trickled down to most of the world, which is why, you know, countries like Africa started locking down and, um, um so that was extraordinary. I think it points again to these transformations that have happened um, in the sort of architecture of power at the global level in recent years and decades. So this you know, transfer of power from uh, governments, uh, especially from elected governments or parliaments and so on, to more unaccountable centers of power, centers of private corporate power, but also centers of supranational political power. Mm. Um, you know, and I think in in our last. Um, chat, we spoke about the European Union, but of course, the World Health Organization is another example mm. of, you know, this transfer of power to supranational levels, uh, where power is almost wholly unaccountable to, uh, to, to people. And, um, and so I think these elements help explain, you know, how this consensus formed so rapidly, uh, polarization fed, you know, fed into that. And then, you know, social media further amplified that. Um, in this whole situation, so the the political leaderships, um, I would say, responded quite poorly uh, mm. in a sense that they ended up, with very few exceptions, embracing this consensus. Mm. Uh, I don't think, you know, so this wasn't one big plan, I think. A lot, you know, a lot of political leaders were essentially uh, bullied into taking this, uh, this mm. position because just as we as ordinary citizens felt that pressure to conform to these policies to the point that, you know, I mean, I was, I had doubts about lockdowns very early on, but it took me a while to express my feelings on social media because the atmosphere was so oppressive, you know, uh, but that, that you know, and, and 
the, the violence against anyone who criticized his policies was so strong that, you know, we were all very fearful at first to, you know, even raise timid criticisms of mm. these policies. At least most of us were. But at that same pressure also applied to governments. So this wasn't one big, you know, conspiracy where all the governments were on board. Uh, I think a lot of governments, uh, they had their own reasons, I think, for one, you know, for for viewing those policies as being beneficial. Every government, you know, likes to have unchained power. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's a kind of a natural, if you tell a government, look, do you want, do you want, do you want to be restrained and you want to be, you know, you want to have all these checks and balances or you want to have, you know, unlimited, unchecked power where you can mm-hmm. do whatever you want, just write laws by yourself, uh, you know, sidestep parliament, sidestep every democratic check and balance that's been created over the past 200 years. Uh, and just, you want to be free to do whatever you want? Uh, most people in power will say yes, obviously, you know, because that's how power operates. And that's why, you know, we have built all these constraints, which we thought, you know, uh, would have avoided a situation like the one that, um, arrived mm. three years ago. So clearly it didn't work out as we hoped because what, another thing we saw was how easily all these checks and balances and constitutional guarantees and civil liberties and laws and things that we had in place precisely to avoid a slide into dictatorship can actually be swept away overnight. Mm. And that's exactly what we saw. You know? So I think that's a lot about the nature of, you know, Western so-called democracies. Uh, I think you know it exposed the, the, the to a large degree just how um, illusionary um, our idea of democracy and liberalism uh, really, really is or, or was. Mm. Um, so I think a lot of a lot of politicians, you know, were were, were happy to go along with these policies, um, but but also felt the pressure. And I think the, the the case of Johnson and Trump is a great example of that. You know, we know that they initially took. Um, you know, positions that were skeptical of lockdowns. But within the course of a few weeks, uh, in both cases, they were essentially, I would say, forced to uh, make a U-turn. Mm. And, you know, they stepped in line, uh, went for lockdowns like like everyone else. Um, so again, what does that tell us? When two, you know, two of the most powerful governments in the world, two of the most powerful executives in the world are essentially bullied into making a U-turn. Uh, this speaks of power having shifted elsewhere, away from you know, you know, exec, even executive uh, power, um, to other centers of power. To the point that these centers of power uh, are now able to essentially bully governments, uh, you know, to to take decisions that that that, that you know. That, that that they don't necessarily uh, support. I think that's that's extremely um, worrying. So uh, you know, I think this is uh, in you know in very broad strokes. I think what you know what explains this uh, you know how this uh, COVID consensus um, sort of crystallized very very early early on, mm. with very very few exceptions. You know, Sweden is an obvious exception. Is the most famous exception of uh, of a Western country that didn't go along with the lockdown policies was, you know, placed under massive pressure, uh, massive international pressure, but it didn't budge, it resisted. And in the end, I would say, was vindicated by the data because Sweden uh, has one of the lowest Texas deaths um, in the in, in in the Western world, even though it didn't lock down. So uh, again, we see a clear example of this idea that you know we had to lock down to save lives, and not locking down meant um, you know condemning countless people to uh, to 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 their death. That was clearly never true, and you know Sweden is there to testify it, but. Very few governments um, had the strength to stand up to to these policies. And what's most tragic is that, you know, it was especially the weaker governments, so the governments in the global south, the governments in countries like Africa, um, that were, you know, that felt the most pressure to go along with these policies, even though um, it was clear that these policies were going to have particularly destructive effects on 
uh, on poorer economies, economies uh, which are much, much less digitalized, which are heavily reliant on in, you know informal labor, which means labor, you know, which implies that you have to leave the house and usually go to you know travel big distances to go to marketplaces to sell stuff. Um, countries that you know had these kind of economies were always going to suffer immensely from you know lockdowns, and that's that's what happened. I mean. The data well, from the global south the, on, on the effects of lockdowns is simply shocking. I mean, some, you know, um, some studies by the UN and other bodies, I mean, estimate the uh, the deaths caused by lockdowns in the hundreds of thousands. Well, I mean, one thing, Mr. Fossey, that I agree with you, be especially when you use the word called interruptions, because again, we know that when a policy such as the lockdown and again the, what we call the uh, the massive vaccination and could or I mean indeed created this social interruptions for some of the countries. But again, I want to move on to our conversation with two more questions before letting you go. Now, again, as I read through the book and specifically uh, the chapters. That one category of people accounting for over half of the world's population that lost massively, and again, you mentioned as a group, were women. And I want to read something to you from the book, which is quite interesting. I really want you to help us to elaborate. This is what the book wrote, and of course, and uh, you, you know that, and I quote, Meanwhile, the financial burden of women in the global south most of whom work in the formal sector was severe. Now, Mr. Fossey, why is it so essential and critical to mention the role of women under the pandemic in this book? So, in other words, I mean, again, given the fact that everyone was effective, uh, was affected tremendously. You know, we're looking mm-hmm. at uh, uh, men, we're looking at women, looking at children. You know, again, across the board. But again, as I dive into this in this book, it's so outstanding, it's so interesting that you pinpointed the women in the global south that suffered severely. And also, of course, the pain was unimaginable. Why was that crucial for you to include that in the book? What was the message that you and the co-author was trying to send by mentioning this? Well, I think... One first motivation was, uh, you know, just putting this down on record. We can't allow this to simply pass. Uh, A lot of people want to simply forget what happened and move on. And, you know, we want to too, you know, but I think what we're witnessing right now is a a process of, uh, I would say, collective psychological denial. Mm. Uh, As individuals, we tend to react to traumas uh, often, you know, uh, there's a first stage, which is, you know, d- where you tend to, d- you know, to deny the reality of what happened. You t- you tend to not to want to think about it. But we know that, you know, that, you know, at some point you have to address the trauma. Otherwise, it's going to keep, um, uh, um, you know, building up inside of you. And I think as societies, it's the same. You know, we can't. We need to think long and hard about what happened because what happened was uh, extraordinary uh, and terrible on so many levels, on the social, the economic, the political, the psychological level for everyone, uh, for most of the world population. I mean, this is an event that affected, I would say, almost every human being on the planet to Mm. one degree or another. Um, And this this is just something, it's not something... You know, and 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 it's it's just, we can't just let it slide, um, especially when we consider um, how devastating these policies were for mm. certain categories of people. Especially uh, now, I don't know if we're ever going to have accountability for what happened. I'm not too optimistic about that, um, but nonetheless, we felt the need to record and just have a uh, uh, uh you know a written testimony mm. of what happened. and i think you know ours is the first book to do that but and certainly with such a you know wide global scope 
you know, we wrote a book because we didn't feel there was a book out there that did this. There were books that concentrated on maybe specific countries, specific aspects of the pandemic management, but no book that actually tried to take a, a holistic um, approach, to, you know, weaving together all the various strands and, or, you know, especially compiling the consequences of these policies. Um, and, and, and they were devastating. Um, you know, a lot of people don't realize just how, because of course, you know, us Westerners tend to focus on, you know, the effects these policies had on Western countries, mm. um, on, on our own countries. Uh, that's understandable. But uh, at the same time, we can't ignore, you know, most people don't realize that a lot of these policies were also followed in the global south, mm. where the consequences were just absolutely uh, horrific. I mean, the UN estimates that about 10 million young girls were forced into marriage um, as a result of these policies. As I was saying, there are uh, studies that you know uh, estimate that hundreds of thousands of people were driven uh, to hunger and death by these mm. lockdown uh, policies. Um, the single uh, focused obsession on COVID in you know poor countries like Africa meant foregoing vaccination policies against much much more dangerous diseases. Again, estimated to have caused um, the. <clears throat> high number of deaths uh you know especially uh, among children which are you know which were at zero risk from covid but are at very high risk from other illnesses that plague um african uh countries um the psychological effects on children uh missing out in some cases on one or even up to two years of school uh you know we know that and the studies tell us that this has had a very bad effect on western kids um as well uh, because, of course, you know, a screen cannot substitute, um, you know, being in a class, you know, mm. being in a physical environment and physically interacting with other kids. Uh, so that we know the psychological damage has been massive, even in the West, uh, you know, rise in mental illnesses, suicide, suicidal tendencies. Um, but of course, it's been much, much bigger in the South, uh, in the global South, where people, where most people don't have Internet access, don't have, you know, you know, nice computers through which to follow, uh, through which to do online learning. And so what what that has meant in a number of countries is that, you know, these kids have literally lost um, mm. one or even two years of uh, education at a crucial stage of their formative process. And that's something they're never going to recover. Uh, you know, if you miss a year of school when you're you know six or seven uh you, you don't recoup that when you're that's seven right. or eight or nine that's mm. that you know that's that that's it that's something that you've lost forever mm. um with you know long-term consequences that these countries and these people are going to pay for years and decades to 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 come um and so you know yes and i think this is the most um yeah, I would say heart-wrenching aspect and even infuriating aspect of this whole uh, story, I think, is that we were sold these policies as policies that were aimed to protect the most vulnerable, you know, old people and, and so on, children. Uh, in fact, the most vulnerable people are the ones that have suffered the most, women. Oh, and of course, you know, when, when we talk about women, we have to mention a massive rise in domestic violence. Of course, right. you shut people inside their homes for months and then that's clearly going to um, trigger a massive spike in uh, domestic abuse, domestic violence. And that's something that we saw not just against women, unfortunately, but also against children. Um, so, again, um, devastating consequences for women. Um, and so women, children and even older people are in fact the ones that suffer the most. Mm. Um, so what happened? So who did these policies really protect? The so-called laptop class. Mm. Well-off, middle-class um, people uh, who live maybe in fairly nice homes, uh, you know, perform jobs that can easily be done uh, online, um, where... In, in some countries, they were also provided with, you know, uh, government support. So, you know, for the laptop class, it was a, a vacation, uh, essentially. That's but right. But we're talking about one of the most privileged uh, um, classes in society. One of the most privileged, um, you know, sectors uh, in society 
for the most vulnerable, for the poorest, for the weakest uh, members of society. Uh, so not just women, children and older people, but also simply uh, working class people who had to continue working, who uh, weren't, didn't, you know, didn't have the benefit to simply shift their their job online because they actually did jobs that required, you know, mm. them get going out of their homes. I and mean, we forget that a lot of stuff was continuing to get done during by, you know, low paid, often precarious workers. Uh, first and foremost, the ones, you know, bringing people their food, you know, that they were ordering on their apps. That's just the most obvious example. Um, and so, and, and, and so I think this in itself exposes the uh, fallacy and the falseness of the mainstream narrative about lockdowns. Uh, they didn't, they weren't, they didn't help the vulnerable. They helped some of the most privileged uh, people in society at the expense of uh, almost everyone else, especially the weakest members of society. And I also want to, you know, uh, mention elderly people because that they were the main focus of that argument. Mm. We need to do this to protect granny and, you know, grandpa uh, and don't, you know, especially this uh, sickening kind of, uh, arguments targeted at young people. Oh, don't go out if you care about not killing your grandma and your grandpa. I mean, the level of propaganda was simply, simply sickening. But what we know is that in fact, while they were locking everyone up, um, you know, including healthy people through lockdowns, they were actually, um, uh, forgetting about the vulnerable and the mm. most vulnerable people from COVID. And who was that? Elderly people in care homes. These are very old, you know, old or very old people who also tend to have, um, you know, serious medical conditions. Those are the ones that we should have focused all our energies and resources on protecting because it was clear from day one that these were the people that were most at risk from COVID. Was this done? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we saw, you know, crazy policies like people being moved from hospitals into care homes, mm. bringing COVID mm. into care homes. This happened in a number of countries. And so what we see is that between 40 and 50% of the deaths in Western countries were, you know, happened in care homes. And in a lot of, in a lot of cases, as the result of a deliberate, uh, of deliberate decisions, such as the one I just mentioned. So, you know, I think, this, at the very least, should be a cause for uh, serious criminal uh, investigations in a number of countries, because this is something where you can clearly um, pinpoint, you know, individual political responsibilities for what happened. And I think if 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 even this doesn't happen, then it means that we have no more accountability whatsoever um, in in our societies. Because th this is when it comes to you know. Um, deaths in care homes. That's one, I think, aspect where it is possible to pinpoint individual uh, criminal responsibilities. And, uh, you know, I, that's something that should be investigated. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, I think that's just one example of a much, much bigger problem. And that is that, you know, it was, um, it was, it was the weakest, it was the poorest ones that suffered from these, uh, from these policies. And so, you know, the reality was the opposite of what, uh, of what they told us. Well, again, Mr. Fossey, I agree with you 100%. Of course, I mean, again, as we mentioned before, COVID-19 was not just a crisis for the world. I mean, again, I believe some people uh, said it in a much better way that COVID-19 was actually served as a mirror that reflects the loopholes and also the issues that we tend to ignore or we purposefully ignore but somehow it is turned into this Pandora box. You know, again, nobody ever want to touch the box. But somehow that we have to do that in order to understand the truth and also understand the fact. Now, again, Mr. Fossey, I want to wrap up our conversation by going back to the title of the book, which is called The COVID Consensus, The Global Assault on Democracy and Also the Poor, a Critic from the Left. Mr. Fossey, the last question, very simple. What would you expect the readers to understand when anyone finishes reading this book. I mean, again, this is not something that took place 10 years ago. This is not something that just happened five or six years ago. I mean, it just, again, as we mentioned before, it just felt to me that this pandemic still had just happened yesterday or maybe last week. And correct me if I'm wrong, and again, some countries today are waiting or perhaps they're already faced the second phase of the pandemic. 
So as we are still going through the procedure, as we're still examining the facts and details, what would you expect the readers to understand as soon as the person finishes reading your book? What would be the best to take away that you expect from the readers? Well, hopefully, I think uh, I would like to hope that readers are kind of blown away by mm. all the information we've collected in the book. Um, because, uh, you know, I think it's, you know, we, we went through great, a great length to co collect all this information. I mean, it was quite a painstaking research and we did it so, you know, everyone else didn't have to do it. So we kind of did it, you know, <laughs> as a public service, sure. um, so to speak, uh, because, um, you know, I think, I think first and, first and foremost, a lot of people don't know a lot of their missing pieces of the information of the, of the puzzle. So of mm. course, in the book, we also give our, our own opinions. But if you look at the first half of the book, it's mostly a chronological reconstruction of what happened. And I think just the amount of data that or, or just the amount of information that maybe people don't know about that we've uh, that we've put in the book, I think that in itself is sufficient to start to maybe take a different view of, uh, of events. And then, of course, in the second part of the book, we offer more of our opinion and, and analysis. But I think it's first and foremost, it's important for people, I think, to, uh, you know, uh, you know, just to go over again what happened and, you know, maybe try to while, while we were living it, we were focused on the moment. We were focused on, you know, we, we all had a, kind of a tunnel vision. Mm. Um, and so I think that's why we missed a lot of what was happening, you know, to our sides. Mm. And, you know, and so in this book, we try to, you know, take away our blindfold and, or not our blindfold, let's, you know, throw away the tunnel. And, <laughs> you know, let's give everyone a chance to get, gain a more 360 degree vision of what actually happened. Um, hopefully that will get people thinking um about what actually happened and it'll convince people that we can't just forget about it because you you say to you it feels like it was it happened yesterday but i think to a lot of people it feels like it happened a century ago mm. like i think and i think for a lot of people in fact it's almost as if it never happened mm. uh it's as if you know there's you know normal life and then it's kind of you know two years which we you know, blacked out in our memory, kind of one big, uh, you know, black line as the ones you find in, you know, the, the declassified documents. And then life starts again in early 2023. Um, so I think there's a tendency of, for people not to want to think about what happened uh, because, you know, even if maybe they don't admit it, it was really traumatic for mm. everyone. Um, and, um, but at the same time, I think we can't afford to do that because all the problems and all the conditions that gave rise to that pandemic response, which was so, you know, so damaging. That's right. And so destructive on so many levels on the political and the economic and the social level, um, all the conditions are still in place. And in fact, they've worsened as a result of the pandemic. So the economy is even more, you know, we have high, even higher levels of inequality, mm. uh, even higher levels of wealth con concentration at the highest, you know, at the top of the um, capitalist pyramid. Uh, these corporations that were already influential before the pandemic have become even more influ influential. These supranational, undemocratic organizations that were already powerful before the pandemic, like the EU and the World Health Organization, are more powerful mm. than they've ever been. Uh, if, you know, the media is uh, more one-sided than it's ever been. Um, so, and 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 governments have become um, more repressive uh, mm. than they were before the pandemic. And so, um, um, and so, the question is understanding that yes, the pandemic may be over, but the COVID paradigm is still very much in place. So, the notion that uh, or this. Um, this the 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 fact that our political classes and our economic and political elites seem to privilege um, this kind of response to emergencies that hasn't gone away. Mm. Um, and in fact, you know, so this idea of governing people through uh, through fear and of exploiting emergencies and of and of exploiting crises to further entrench their power, this is a paradigm that's still very much um, alive. 
And, uh, you know, so at every crisis, we're going to see whatever, whatever you know, s- margins of democracy that are left just growing smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And so, you know, for example, I mean, now with the war in Ukraine, we can already see the application of the COVID paradigm to this new crisis. Mm. We already see the same treatment of the war in the media, same attempt to impose a single narrative, Mm. same treatment, uh, same exclusion from the public debate of any critical voices, of any dissenting voices. Um, And so, you know, we can again see the COVID paradigm at play there. And I think we will see, uh, you know, the world's full of dangers and, you know, um, potential crises and emergencies. So there's never going to be a lack of excuses uh, to, you know, lock us down again or to implement new forms of repression and control because there will always be excuses at hand that will allow for that. And so, uh, you know, one can imagine, you know, the same lockdown paradigm being applied to, for example, the climate issue. And Mm -hmm. so, you know... Well, we have to lock everyone down because that's the only way of getting people not to uh, um, not to you know consume too much energy. Um, or you know, one could make other examples. And so I think it's important. You know, we have to realize that unless we address these problems in our societies, um, you know, where democracy is going to become more and more of uh, of 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 an illusion and of a distant memory. Um, and so we can't, you know, we, we, we can't afford to simply let what happens slide because otherwise it's going to happen again. And the next time it's going to be um, even worse. Well, again, Mr. Fassi, I agree with you 100 percent. Of course, that two things that you said really touched my heart. And number one is we can't let it slide. So in other words, we can't pretend that what happened in the pandemic was only the imagination, which is what's not. I mean, it was a real lesson. It was a hardcore lesson for the entire world to understand some of the fundamental principles on democracy. And also the second thing is, again, you mentioned, I'm very glad you mentioned the word in Ukraine, is we're looking at the fragility of democracy today. I mean, again, it's not just about the war in Ukraine, and it's not just about what's happening in the United States. We don't know what's gonna, who's going to be the next president for the country. But meanwhile, democracy today is standing at the crossroads, and we cannot afford to let it slide by, and also, of course, place it at the wrong hands. Well, again, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Mr. Thomas Fazi. Again, Mr. Thomas Fazi is one journalist and a writer and a translator, and his articles have appeared in numerous online and printed publications. I strongly encourage everyone go online to grab a copy of his latest book, which is uh, he co-authored called The COVID Consensus, The Global Assault on Democracy and the Poor, a critic from the left. And again, I thoroughly enjoy reading this book and I hope that everyone can go online, grab the copy and uh, get started because this book is going to open up so much about the facts that we don't know or we have never heard. Again, Mr. Fazi, thank you so much for taking your time. It's been a pleasure. We really appreciate and we'd love to have you back on the show as we continue to follow the progress and also the fairs around the international community. So thank you so much for doing this.